The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. and welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod and I'm large. I'm coming to you large. <laughs> we are so excited to be here with you this morning live talking about autism from a 360 degree perspective. Uh, we are coming to you live from the Warner Center. This is the home for Autism Live. It is also the home for the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. And um, I'm Shannon Penrod. As always, thrilled to be here with you. They're going to adjust my camera so that you don't have to look up my nose hairs. Uh, so thrilled to be here with you on this Thursday morning. You know, there I am uh, on Thursday mornings. We are uh, so excited to be here. We have a wide range of different guests that are going to be on the show with us today. And um, I'm always thrilled to be here. We like to remind you that our show, we're going to be live for the next two hours. It's meant to be interactive. We hope that you will want to participate with us and, and, and be a part of that interaction. So, Traven is going to show you some of the different ways that you can connect with us. And while you're, we're doing that, I'm going to remind you that our homepage is autism-live.com. Now, if you haven't been there in a while, let me just tell you, it looks a little bit different than it used to look. Uh, we have, we have uh, changed the drape, so to speak. Uh, it's a different website. I hope that you will play with it interact with it, send us notes about what works and what doesn't work. We're not in the beta phase anymore, but we're still, it's a big website with a lot of buttons. So if you see something that doesn't work, don't just get miffed, send me an email so that we can get the team working on it. But we changed the website and, and it's really been a two year in the making thing because we want you to be have, having better access to the information that you need. So there's a search feature, you can search the videos. I especially love that with the Ask Dr. Doreen, you can search by topic, but you can, um, what's great is you can search it in um, a textual, I, sometimes people get overwhelmed by seeing all the little, um, the little pictures, and um, you know, if you wanted to look up potty training, right, you, there's a wide variety of potty training things that you would want to look up. Um, if you're potty training a 14-year-old, that's vastly different than if you're potty training a two-and-a-half-year-old, which is vastly different than if you're um, working on toileting skills with somebody who's in their 60s, right? So what we've done is we give you the topic. Um, there's a place that you can click at the top. You click the topic for Ask Dr. Doreen. You go to toilet training, and then it lists all of the questions that Dr. Doreen has answered on toileting and you click the one that you feel is the most relating to what you'd like to know and it takes you right to that spot in that video. Woohoo, right? I think that's a remarkable thing. So anyway, check us out there, but there's lots of other places to check us out. Uh, lots of other places that you can write in questions. 
uh, when you're on our homepage, it if we're live, it'll say live on the top, right? And there's a red button. And if it doesn't immediately pop up, you can click on that. If it does a pop-up screen that takes up your whole screen. Um, but at the bottom of the page is a little button that should be active 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's the chat button. It's just that we're not there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you can put things in the chat. It's a little bit of a misnomer because I don't have the ability to write directly back to you from there. Um, but you can put something in the chat feature. We, we bring it up here and try to talk and, and answer the questions that you guys ask on that. So, but I will tell you that people, uh, sometimes it's faster if you're asking a question on Facebook, but you don't have total anonymity. So it's like, well, six to one, half dozen of another. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the other thing that we like to remind you on Thursdays, I like to remind you, is that we have a lot of experts that are on the show, and I'm not one of them. I am a mom. My son was diagnosed with autism at the age of two and a half. And I know from our perspective, some of the stuff that we had to go through and part of my mission is I just want to make it easier. I, I want to leave this better than I found it, right? And I know how hard it was for me. So if I can make it just incrementally easier for you, it makes my day. It seriously makes my, can I tell you how ridiculously happy I get? I was at um, an autism uh, event uh, not too long ago, right before the holidays. And there was a dad who was there with his son and we were talking about the shoe tying piece and for some kids how difficult that is. And I'm just really like, I, have my I was like, where are my glasses? I can't find my glasses. They're on my head. How about that? Um, but, uh, and the dad was saying, you know, this is this, you know, we're at the point where there's other things that we want to work on. We're not going to let it go entirely, but it's such a big deal in the morning with the shoe tying thing. And I said, oh, you know, there's these great shoe tie things that they clip and they stretch and he can put his foot in and, and it stretches back and it fits and they're called hickeys. And the dad was like, wait a second. And we, you know, all brought it up on our phone and he ordered them and, and then he posted it on Facebook and he said, Shannon Penrod, thank you. These hickeys work. And, I, and it made my entire weekend. Can I just tell you how ridiculously happy I was like, I'm so glad that I could, because that made it easier for dad in the morning. It just makes me happy. So if I can help you do something, please put me to work for you. Let's talk about it. Even if it's just to say, I'm in this with you and this is hard and you're doing a good job, right? Si se puede and we can do it together. We hold hands, but don't confuse me for an expert. <laughs> That's the gist of all of that, right? But I'm here with you. And, uh, and then we have the experts on the show. So that's the cool part of it. Um, all right. And on Thursdays, we, uh, there's something that we like to start the show with that we fondly refer to as the jargon of the day. And this is when we take on one word, one phrase, one acronym. We try to figure out what in the hey, nani, nani are they talking about? And why should I care? Why should I bother? What does this have to do with me? I have to tell you that this took on new meaning for me this weekend because as I said yesterday, I was at the ABAI conference for autism, the 13th annual one in um, San Francisco this weekend. And it was so much, uh, it was just so great to be with that many people who care so deeply about our kids. But they were BCBAs and you know that's a very specific breed of people. They like graphs. I don't get that. I don't understand that. But thank goodness they like graphs, right? Um, so uh, 
and jargon was something that got discussed. Somebody did a presentation about jargon and how it really is death on a popsicle stick for parents. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it's death on a popsicle stick. But, um, I, you know, I had high hopes. There were other people who were speaking. I, I was doing a talk about the parent piece and, and how to get parents to buy into ABA. And um, I, but I looked through the program and went, I'm going to circle all the talks that I feel would be not only beneficial for me, but that I can take back to my audience and say, hey, guess what I learned? I was very excited about that. And uh, one of the ones that I really wanted to go to was one about uh, fun teaching functional communication and being more effective with it. And, and let me just say, the doctor was great, and I don't mean to make fun, except that I'm going to make fun of the jargon, because we, I, I feel that we should make fun of the jargon. <laughs> it's the only way to stay sane. And I was very excited to hear about how can we teach functional communication faster, more effective. And he started out, and he said, okay, well, you know, first, the first thing you have to do is the manned modality assessment. The, the manned modality assessment, and it was up on the big screen, and I looked at that, and I went, okay, breathe, tear it apart, you know what a manned is, you know what modality is, and you know what an assessment is, so what's a manned modality assessment? And I, and then he was already talking about other things, and I was sort of half listening to that, and still a little bit like, wait a second, wait a second, wait, I don't, like, I think, I, no, I don't have it. Uh, man modality assessment and I'm telling you it was hurting my head and I thought well let me drop back into the talk and see if I can figure it out based on what he was saying and he was like well so on lag one when we, and I was like what's a lag I have no idea so we're gonna be introducing some new jargon but I when the talk was over I turned to the group of women BCBAs that were sitting all around me that I'd never met before and I said can I just ask you ladies something you understand what he was saying and they were all like yeah yeah we understood you didn't understand and I said no I didn't. no I didn't understand manned modality assessment and they were like yeah but nobody explained it to me uh, which I find very suspicious right so all afternoon I was talking to people going I didn't I didn't get it I didn't I didn't I didn't understand it I wasn't with you on it and then that night there was a reception and I was talking, I, and I talked to like three different groups of people and I said, I didn't, I, you know, that man modality assessment, I never got past there. And by the time I like gave up on it, I was lost in, in a sea of new jargon that I'd never heard of before. And, uh, and one lady turned to me and she was like, oh, that's so unfortunate because that's such an easy concept, the man modality assessment. And I said, well, all day I've been saying that and nobody's bothered to explain it to me. And she said, oh, bless your heart. Man modality assessment is just checking in for which way does your kid like to ask for things. Because it's a manned, and we're figuring out which way they like to mand, and mands are when they request things, and the assessment is checking. How does a kid like to request things? Do they like to request things vocally? Do they need to do it through sign language? Do they use PECs? Do they use an iPad? How do they like to ask? And once we know how they like to ask, then we move forward let me just tell you. I said, why didn't he just say that? Like, maybe I would have understood the rest of the talk, but I got stuck on the man modality assessment. So uh, this is why we do jargon of the day, um, so that we can communicate with these people who like graphs that are helping our children. Uh, so when we take uh, a word, a phrase, an acronym, 
we give you the actual definition. We make fun of it for the fun of it. And then we move on to a working definition so that we can hopefully get a handle on what it is exactly that we're talking about. So, you know, we're back at the beginning of the year. So we're, we're going back to basics. And today's jargon term is... Dun, da, da, da. He's going to put it there. It's coming. There it is. Uh, ASD. So uh, let's... I, th I think we hear this term a lot. Let's talk about what this actual, actual definition of it is. Um, and I don't think that's our actual definition, that what I've got there. So don't, uh, don't put up what we've got there. Uh, but so ASD is autism spectrum disorder. Plain and simple, that is, that is what it is. Autism spectrum disorder, as defined by here in the United States, the DSM-5. And the, and the DSM-5 changed a little bit autism because before there was autism and then there was, um, asp but that's not the correct one. So let's take that one down, uh, Trayvon. So um, in any case, uh, there used to be the autism spectrum disorder and it was kind of like a menu in a Chinese restaurant that you had to have uh, two from column A and two from column B and at least one from another column in order to have an autism diagnosis. And then there was PDD-NOS, which meant that you didn't have enough to qualify from column A or B, but you had some configuration of it. And then the third diagnosis was Asperger's syndrome. And uh, PDD-NOS and Asperger's syndrome are no longer specific diagnoses. Now it all comes under the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder. And it's a rating scale of one to three for severity. And several things have changed about it. But the thing that's important to me about talking about when we say ASD, um, that we all need to be aware of and mindful of in our community and, out, and, and then put that forward to outside the community is that very specifically it is included in the title, it's a disorder. And what that means is that the, the symptoms are not only present, but they are present to the level that it disrupts the person being able to live their life without supports. And that's the thing that we all need to be mindful of and aware of, that I have certain aspects of uh, different columns of an ASD diagnosis, but I don't qualify for a diagnosis of a disorder. I don't need to go and get support with that in order to be able to do my job. I'm able to do workarounds around those things and still be happy and productive, as do most people. So when we talk about the fact that there is a spectrum in the autism world, I firmly believe that everybody's somewhere on that spectrum. Um, even if it's just that people, you know, I always use the example of the executive who sits and clicks his pen because, the, you know, it's, there's something about it. This is automatic reinforcing behavior. There's something about that that's soothing or stimulating or whatever. We all have things that we do that, that you could look at and go, oh, well, that's part of an autism spectrum diagnosis. But the point is, is that if all, if you got stuck doing the pen and you couldn't ever get to the work, then that would qualify for being part of a disorder, right? And it's very specific, the diagnosis, so that you have to have enough things and 
It has to be disrupting your life in such a way that you would need supports in order to live a full life. Now, of course, that kind of puts a, a value on what do we consider a full life. And I have to tell you that there are many people who are on the autism spectrum who say, I'm leading a life that I'm just happy with. I don't have to be uh, what you are um, and that they take offense to the word disorder. And, you know, I don't think that we can tell anybody um, what their life should be. But for the purposes of diagnosing, um, there is this term autism spectrum disorder. I think where we get into a, a very interesting conversation is that a child can be diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and they can need a great deal of support. But we know, without a doubt, that, at, that a, many children, not all, but many children, if they're given the right support at the right time, at the right amount, and it's done well, they can reach a point where they no longer qualify for a diagnosis of a disorder. Does that mean that they don't have autism? I think that the things that their brain, the way their brain worked, still qualify them to deem themselves, if they choose, to have autism, but they no longer have a disorder. And that is very emotional for people. People are like, nope, you know, uh, once you have ASD, you always have ASD. Like doctors were like, no, you can't lose the diagnosis, except that we've seen people no longer qualify for a disorder. Um, and then what do you call that? And more and more there are different words. It's very fascinating the words that people assign to this. There are a lot of professionals that I know that choose to use the word recover. There are just as many if not more professionals who say I don't use that word. It doesn't fit. It's not exact. It's not precise. There are physicians now that have children that are on the autism spectrum that when uh, at one point they qualified for ASD so that they had a disorder and then they moved to a point where they no longer qualify for that diagnosis and so they code it for insurance purposes as remission. ASD in remission. Isn't that fascinating? Like, like remission means it could come back. We haven't seen that. Um, so, I, you know, I'm just telling you ASD autism spectrum disorder and if there you can google dsm-5 and you can uh, google dsm-5 autism criteria and read exactly what that criteria is in this moment in time it has changed periodically um, and it's a very interesting thing to look and see but we always see that there are defi deficits in social skills there are deficits in social language um, and that there are restrictive and repetitive behaviors that go hand in hand uh, um, with this diagnosis. These are the hallmarks that have been in pretty much all of the different uh, diagnoses that have been in the last 20 years. So you will see people having um, some sort of a communication. Now it's considered more a social communication issue um, and there's room for that, which that includes the folks because for a long time it was the Asperger folks didn't have a language deficit, they only had the social language language deficit. 
So now that is more um, under the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder. There we have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is um, our, our jargon of the day. Now moving on, we always have a uh, question of the day. And today is no different. So our question today is, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? And, and I know we try really hard here to make sure that we're empowering you. But you know, sometimes it's, it's, a, it's very scary to ask, what am I afraid of? But sometimes if you bring the most scary thing out into the light, you trot it out into the light and you look at it under a microscope, put it underneath the light and look at it under the microscope, you can face it. And you can ask yourself, is there anything that I can do about this? How much of this is in my control? And then the flip of it is, how much of it is not within my control? And how can I find peace in what I don't have control in? Right? It's the serenity prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And therein lies sanity, right? And anything less, you know, could be uh, a waste of time and a lot of anxiety. And, you know, the, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. So what's kicking your can? What are you afraid of? What's the biggest thing that you are afraid of? And then what can, what can you, how much of it do you have control over? What could you possibly do? I know a lot of people are afraid for their kids' safety. Um, like that goes to the core, right? And so, but this is a great question to ask yourself because if that is your biggest fear is the safety of your child, when you ask yourself, what can I do? There's actually a great deal that you can do. Um, you know, you can teach your, sh your child safety skills. I'd say that's number one on, <laughs> on the hit parade list. You can make your child as safe as possible in your home and in the places where they are until they learn the safety skills. But if you just put locks on the door, it doesn't get it done, right? That doesn't solve anything because we need to be teaching them at the same time. Um, and then um, saying to yourself, what don't I have control over? And figuring out what kind of person are you and how can you make peace with that? One of the things we're gonna be talking today is about meditation and how that can help us to accept the things that we don't have control over. But um, I don't want you to be afraid to ask yourself this question, what are you afraid of? Um, ask yourself the question, I, I, I feel like the answer to fear is to sort out what can I do and then do it. Because often there's some action that we're not taking or that we've been avoiding taking because we're afraid of that. Um, and once you start to take that action, it minimizes the fear. Um, take it from the woman who often in life has been paralyzed by the fear of something and, and the only thing that helps me is if I look at it this way and go, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, what am I actually afraid of? What do I have control over? What action can I now take and then take it immediately and it just takes, takes the gas right out of the fear. But I'd love to hear from you guys. If you have a way that you deal with the fear, write in. Tell us what you're afraid of and what you do to be able to move forward and move through that. We'd love to hear. All right, let's talk about our topic of the week. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. The overriding thing that we're talking about. And where is it? There it is, being willing. This is the biggest part, you know, because I think a lot of times we get into a place where we're not willing to look at it. 
Uh, I don't want to talk about what I'm afraid of. I don't want to look at that. I don't want to know what that is. I don't, right? And you know what? There's a phase and a time for that too, but you quickly outgrow it. At a certain point, it's like that gets so uncomfortable because you know in your gut that something has to be done, right? You just have to be willing. And uh, you have to be willing to look at it. You have to be willing to do something. You have to be willing to let go of all the things that you were holding on to that didn't work. Uh, right? Uh, most of the time that I'm talking to parents, it, it's usually somewhere in that neighborhood. It's like, oh, I, I thought my life was going to be this. I thought this was going to be easier. I didn't know that this was going to be so hard. And the minute that a parent says, okay, I'm willing to do it, it's amazing how things get easier. And parents always say, oh my gosh, I wish I'd done this sooner. Like, why didn't I let go of this sooner? Well, you weren't ready. Uh, you know what I mean? We've all been there. So today we're going to talk a little bit about how we get ourselves willing. What kinds of things help us to get into the mode? Uh, I, I, I've been known to say in my life, I, I need to be willing to be willing. Ugh. Can I please just be willing today to be willing, right? Um, and that's often the truth of it. But uh, in any case, we've got a great show for you today. Listen to this hit parade. So we have special education attorney Bonnie Yates is going to be with us. I bless her heart. She always has things to talk about. I don't really know what we're talking about today. I'm just going to admit that up front. We have Sean Swentek and Ari Markow. They are going to be with us. They are from an organization called A Walk on Water. They do surfer um, therapy with kiddos on the autism spectrum. So we're going to talk about that and what that is. Then a little bit later on in the show, we have Christian Shaw. Christian um, has a, uh, a site and a blog site where they talk specifically about disability awareness um, anxiety disorder and ADHD. This is such a huge piece of our um, autism community, the anxiety and the ADHD. And if we could get that under control, uh, it can be an amazing thing. So um, this is a, I, I misspoke, it's a newsletter. I said blog, but it's a newsletter and it's called Cam Loops, Self-Advocate newsletter. So Christian is going to be here with us to talk about that and some of the success stories from folks who um, subscribe to the newsletter. And it's called Cam Loops with a K. There it is up on the screen. So thrilled um, that we're going to have that. Plus which we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and have a mindfulness moment where we talk about being willing. Hey, so, I'm Candace Cameron Bray. Tom Bergeron. You're watching Autism Live. And you're watching Autism Live. And you're watching Autism Live. You're watching Autism Live. Do you provide care services to someone with autism? Recently, more and more children are being diagnosed with the condition and getting the support they need as awareness grows. But what happens to these children as they grow up? It's estimated that over half a million youth with autism will turn 18 in the next decade, and they'll be faced with a very difficult reality. As children with autism grow up, their services start to disappear or become very difficult to access. Things like medical care, mental health counseling, vocational training, and more. All services that are still desperately needed. 
the loss of support that youth with autism face as they grow up is so severe that it's referred to in the autism community as falling off a cliff. Adults with autism need the same level of support they had as children to avoid falling off the surface's cliff. Introducing Skills Living, the web-based software designed specifically to help transitioning youth and adults with autism so they can avoid the cliff and instead fly to success. With Skills Living, help your learner with autism develop the skills they need in all the critical areas of adult life, including self-control, planning, and problem solving. Effective communication, performing life skill tasks for independent living, acquiring and maintaining employment or other meaningful activities, developing and maintaining social skills and relationships, accessing transportation and public services, and being safe. Skills Living includes a comprehensive assessment, a data collection mobile app, behavior intervention plan builder, and automatic progress reporting. It also provides a complete curriculum addressing 16 key areas spanning the entire range of functioning adulthood. Skills Living is easy to use and can be implemented by schools, parents, and autism service providers. Call or click today for your free demo and see how Skills Living can help your learner with autism avoid the cliff and instead reach their fullest potential. Skills Living. Wish. Learn. Become. Love that. Ad, I love Skills Living. I love Skills. I'm all about it. When you call them, tell them that you found out about it, uh, it from Autism Live. Let them know that that's how you connected with it. Uh, <laughs> lets them know we're you know we're over here saying nice things about them uh okay can i just stop for one second and say one thing that i really didn't address as we started this new year that we have a new producer here with us um and he is in training taking over uh the show and so i just wanted to give a shout out to Traven hardy who's doing an amazing job as he is um learning this and you're going to see that things are going to be a little bit fun and wonky and and you know what I always say about we have gremlins in the studio it's going to be a little bit as he and I learn how to do this dance together it's it, you know you're going to see some things that are going to be hilarious and and funny and whatever and I always I know that you guys appreciate and I've been saying to Traven um, that uh, we're doing a show about autism here we're talking about the big ideas with autism and trying to connect with you and help you so that you can get to the resources that you want to. It's not about having the prettiest show. Of course, we want to give you a pretty show and we're working towards that direction, but I hope that you will welcome Traven because he's an amazing young man and he's doing a great job. And, uh, we're, you know, the fact that we're on and, and getting it done and he's really in his second week, it's, he's doing an amazing job. So I just want to give a shout out to Traven. Um, okay, so I promised you a mindful mo mindfulness moment, too. And I guess, you know, that's part of it, too, is that um, one of the things that was taught to me about mindfulness um, that I have to say has really helped me in the last five years was uh, somebody saying to me, you know, it's the 555 rule, that um, this thing that you're upset about right now, is uh, how upset are you going to be about this in five days? How upset are you going to be about it in five months? And how upset are you going to be about it in five years? And by the way, you can change the five. Um, and I do this with my son all the time because he'll be, you know, a little bit upset about something. He does this to me more than I do it to him, quite honestly. But um, he'll say to me, you know, are you, sometimes he'll say to me, are you still going to be upset about this in five minutes? 
Are you going to be upset about this in five hours? Are you going to be upset about this in five days? You can change the five, but the, the, the perspective for me about am I still going to be upset about this in five years is always an interesting thing, right? Because stuff happens in your day. And I'm somebody that can, you know, I can get cranky. Um, I'm especially cranky about customer service. I just got to be honest with you. That's one of my pet peeves. I go someplace and if I walk into a small shop and somebody is dealing with another person, that's fine, but I appreciate some eye contact or a hi, I'll be with you in just a moment. You know, that's a great thing. I hate being ignored, especially when I've come to spend money. I am a thrifty Scots person. <laughs> I don't, I don't op like to open my wallet. And if I've come to open my wallet, I want to be greeted and be happy. Um, and I am somebody who will complain about customer service. But my son will remind me, like, how upset are you going to be about this? Perfect example. I love me some Costco. I, you know, just putting that out there. Costco does not pay for, they should, they should hire me to promote their stuff because I like to talk about a lot of the GFCF organic stuff that is at Costco, right? But, you know, I had that experience at Costco the other night when it was well past rush hour. It should not have been the busiest hour at Costco, but there were a lot of people there and we were having to stand in line and, and the line was like, it was like Christmas time, you know, where the line is all the way back to the folded clothes. You know things aren't going well when the line goes all the way back there. And, um, and we couldn't even see the registers. We were that far back. And we waited in line for like 38 minutes and got towards the front of the line. And I could see that the manager was standing there talking to like five people. What are you doing? If there's time enough for you to stand and have a conversation, open another register. I mean, that's just common sense, right? And so, and I got very upset about it. And my son was like, you know, let it go. Are you going to be upset about this? And five minutes, you're going to be upset about it in five days. Well, look, it's three days later and I'm still talking about it, but I won't be talking about it in five years. I won't be, you know, because it's not that big of a deal. So I need that perspective of five years. Um, by the way, I made sure that I went up to the manager before we left and I said, hi, it was very nice. And I said, are you the manager? Yes. And I said, I just want to let you know that when we're standing in line for a really long time at a place where we're considered members, I have to pay to shop here, and you guys are standing and congregated and talking, that it says to me that you don't care about us as members. And she said, oh, those were people who were, you know, coming back from their break and they weren't punched in yet and I couldn't have put them. And I said, did you hear what I said? I said, when you stand there, it makes us feel like we're not, I don't care what the reason is. Like if people are coming back from break, don't have them stand there and talk because it makes us feel, and she didn't get it. She was like, not, you know, she was like, well, but they, I can't, you know what I mean? Didn't get it, didn't get it, so, which is why I'm still upset about it days later. But I will let it go because I'm not going to care about it in five years. And I don't want my whole life to be being upset with the manager of the Costco. And I love me some Costco. So, but it's important. And my son did get me laughing about it. He's like, Mom, you know, you're not, this is not, <laughs> this is not the biggest thing happening in the world right now. Um, but we get upset about things and we hold on to them. And it's important to realize that eventually we can't hold on to all of it, right? Eventually we let it down. So you have a choice. 
that we all do, that if, if it's something that we're not going to be upset about five minutes from now, if it's something we're not going to be upset about five days from now or five years from now, do we need to hang on to it right now? Can we put it? Or um, if you are feeling like, ah, but I can't let go of it, is there any action you can take? I did. I took the action and I went up to her and said, this is how we feel. Now, I could take more action, right? I could call corporate, and heaven knows I have before. Uh, <laughs> I'm that kind of about customer service. But, um, but you know, I, we, and my son and I had the conversation on the way to the car, and he was like, are you going to call somebody? And they said, no, because it isn't that important. It just isn't. It isn't that important. And let it go, right? Um, so how can we use this in our lives? I love what one dad said to me. Um, I was on my way to an IEP meeting and he could see that I was really feeling stressed. And the dad said, what's going on? And I said, I'm going to an IEP meeting. And I said, do you know how that is? And it's all that stress. And, it's, and he said, oh, yes, Kabuki Theater. And I said, Kabuki Theater? What are you talking about? My, my IEPs are not like Kabuki Theater. And Kabuki Theater you know, people have masks or they have a puppet um, that is doing the talking for them. And he said to me, no, it's that thing of it's removed. You don't really have to get upset at the IEP meeting. There's a certain amount of posturing that you have to do. It's theater. You have to go in and you have to be like, here's what I need for my child. Um, and you have to show them that you are strong and you are stern and you are not moving. And, and when they say something that's inappropriate, you have to appropriately be offended and say, you know, that's horrifying that you just said that. He said, but the truth is you can have the mask do it and not involve the lining of your stomach. And I was like, what? I don't have to get upset. I just have to posture and pretend that I'm someone who would be upset. Like, if you think about it, it's like it takes a minute to go, oh, I just have to put on a performance that I'm coming in and being offended by it. Because his whole point was, it, in the end, it all gets sorted out. He's like, how many IEPs have you been through? And I said, I think this is like number 10. And he said, and had any of them gone so badly that, you know, it was it, your, your son didn't get what he needed in the end? And I said, no. We worked through it, but it was because I was stern and I was ferocious and I was like letting them know. And he said, yeah, you put on the mask, but you don't have to have a nervous breakdown about it. This was news to me. This was absolute news to me. So we can put the mask on. We can have the conversation knowing, having the safe space in our gut, knowing that our child is okay. And I will be honest with you, to bring this full circle back around to the being willing, knowing that, having that idea in my head and in my stomach, knowing I just have to posture, I'm still going to show up for my kid. I'm, I'm going to put on the mask and I'm going to be the person that I need to be for the meeting, but I don't have to involve, I don't have to get anxious, I don't have to feel like I'm, I'm going to need to throw up. Because honestly, I've been to IEPs where, where I you know, have said to my husband, I don't, I'm hyperventilating, I don't know if I'm going to get through it. Um, I used to have panic attacks around IEP meetings, but knowing that it's like, oh, I don't have to do that. That isn't, that didn't, that's not what got it done. What got it done was a certain amount of puffed up, 
following, you know, I know my rights. This is what we're going to do. Negotiating, being firm, but that I don't have to lose my mind over it. So, you know, how can you help yourself with this? How can we all help ourselves? I think awareness is a big part of it. I will tell you right now that part of my process and being ready for those kinds of things, the research that we've covered here on the show are the executive poses. Uh, there is the Superman one where you put your hands on your waist and you put your legs apart and you stand as if you're Superman for two minutes and then your performance is better. Right? Uh, I, I use that all the time before something that's kicking my keister. It's like a two-minute uh, physical meditation where you put your body in a pose that's powerful, right? There, so that's one of the poses. One of the other ones, which is hard for me because of my shoulders, is to have your hands up in like a Y position um, and stand that way. But that one's harder for me. I don't feel powerful. I feel weak in that pose. So I don't like that one. But the other one... <laughs> Um, which uh, is not also, also not my favorite, is you put your, you lace your hands behind your back so that it opens up your chest. I think that's part of it too, is you're supposed to make breath more available. You lean back in a chair and you put your feet up on the table like a, an executive lounging. Um, I am not well coordinated and have uh, had the chair tip over on me before and crack my head. So I'm not doing the executive one. <laughs> I also don't like shoes on the furniture either. I'm just being honest, right? So the Superman one, that's my favorite, but everybody has their favorite. Taking that pose for two minutes. First of all, what it does is it makes you stop for two minutes, right? It puts you in a place where it's got to put you in a place where you can breathe. I love the Superman one because it opens up uh, that area. And this can often be the most vulnerable area, right? So it forces me to open that up a little bit allow air into that and and you tilt your chin up a little bit and you feel powerful you feel powerful right but it, it you're breathing for the two minutes you're taking a moment out of the time um, to just focus on the breath which is a meditative mindfulness thing but while i'm there when i have other thoughts that are intruding and and getting in my way and um and making me uh, you know, like, oh, am I going to be able to do this? And oh, that anxiety that bubbles up. I replace that with the thought, I'm powerful. And when you're standing like that, you feel powerful, right? So I encourage you to give that a try before the next thing that you have to do that's sort of kicking your can, that's making you, you know, like, oh, I don't, I, I'm afraid I'm going to let my kid down, right? Stand for two minutes. Sometimes I don't get full two minutes in. Uh, I do this in the elevator all the time especially if I'm alone, but not always when I'm alone. I think people think I'm weird. It's okay. Uh, but I'll, I'll do it in the elevator because I don't have anything else to do in the elevator, right? And, and everything goes better. They've done studies on this, even on surgeons, to see if they do these, these poses for two minutes before a surgery, do the surgeries go better, and guess what they do. And I'm telling you, it's, it's a really powerful thing. It gets you in the present, too. Uh, I, uh, do you know, um, oh, I can't think what his name is. That's horrible. It'll come back to me. Uh, famous actor that I absolutely adore. Uh, help me guys. He was Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek and then he's in the X-Men. It's like Patrick Stewart. Thank you. Okay. Patrick Stewart. So, um, 
when back in the days when I was in graduate school, Patrick Stewart came to visit my graduate school and was talking to us as a group of actors about being an actor. And one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard, um, one of my classmates got up and was working on a piece with him. She was playing Juliet. And uh, so he was working with her. And he stopped her for a second. He said, what is your preparation? And she went through this lengthy thing about, you know, she goes through her lines and whatever. And he said, you know, here's the thing. There's two kinds of preparation. There's preparation when you actually prepare. And there's preparation when you shoot yourself in the foot. And he, and he said, in my experience, when we allow ourselves to rehearse in the moments right before something, then we're not present. We're not here. We're not mindful of the things that are going on here. And that's shooting yourself in the foot. A much better thing to do in the minutes before you have to do something stressful, whether it's acting or performing or talking to somebody in a difficult conversation, going to an IEP meeting. Of course, he didn't say that, but you know, that's included. He said the way that you actually prepare is to get yourself physically ready. Back then, there wasn't the research about the Superman thing, but I'm sure that Patrick Stewart, uh, if he knows about that, would say that the Superman thing, it's a great thing. Uh, so the other thing that I want to say about the mindfulness piece before I get off of this, because we need to call Bonnie H., um, is that when I went to ABAI, there was a whole workshop on mindfulness that just, I'm talking wig blown, um, was fascinating to me, the research about pairing mindfulness with ABA and how things get better, how parents who are doing mindfulness uh, with themselves uh, help their children and their children get better and doing it with the children are better. Um, and now we've been talking about mindfulness for the last three years. I, I, this is not news to me, but the amount of research that they have showing how effective it is was just very, um, it was like, oh, we got to put more importance on this. And the biggest thing that I heard him say that I was like, oh, okay, we got to work towards this. I'm always trying to give you guys something that's three seconds or 20 seconds or two minutes the longest thing that I've ever asked you to do in terms of mindfulness is 11 minutes. We have an 11-minute meditation um, for stressed out um, special needs parents available for free. It's on iTunes. Um, and that's the longest thing I've asked you to do. And his point over and over and over again is that until you can get to 20 minutes, you're not getting the full benefit. Not that the three seconds isn't great and important and helpful and not that 20 seconds or three minutes or whatever or 11 minutes isn't helpful, but he's like, you're really missing out if you can't get to 20. So my part of my goal this year is to help all of us. I can't get to 20. I'm just being honest with you. Let's see if we can't all move in that direction incrementally and let's see where we end up. So that's my thought on that. All right. Um, thanks for hanging with me on all that. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to connect with Bonnie Yates. I can't wait to hear what we're talking about today, so stick with us. Hello, fellow activists. Last segment, we talked about step three, get support. Step number four is don't compare run your own race. Now, it's one thing to aspire to be like someone that's really helped their child. We all want to do that. That's really different than keeping up with the Joneses. That only serves to make you envious and full of regret. There will always be someone 
who has a child with autism who is doing better than yours and there will always be someone who has a child with autism who's doing worse than yours. One morning I was talking to the mom of a recovered child who told me he had been moved into the gifted class. Well, I had heard that week that my own son, who was in fifth grade, was reading at first grade level. Now, I have to admit, I was kind of proud of him until that phone call, which put me over the edge. The green-eyed monster of jealousy. Well, later that same day, I got into the elevator as I was taking my son to clinic. There was a father with his two sons, one typical and one with severe autism. He was pretty much nonverbal, but he did make some very strange sounds over and over again. He had bite marks, scratches all over his arms. He wore mittens to protect him from himself. The father, however, had a big smile on his face. Needless to say, the universe was sending me a message that day. Don't compare. Be grateful for the progress your child has made and will continue to make. So until next time, keep running your own race at your own pace. Don't forget to stop for water and keep the faith. Hi, this is Lisa Ackerman. Welcome back to Talk of Facts, frequently asked questions and answers for the autism journey. Now this one is specifically for teens and adults with autism. I get this question all the time, what's new and exciting in the medical world uh, today for teens and adults with autism? So let's talk about them. TMS, Transmagnetic Stimulation Therapy, is something that is really exciting. Um, I met with the author, John Robeson, look me in the eye, he's a, a gentleman with Asperger's and something I hope all of our kids to strive and grow up and be just like him, he's amazing. He talked about TMS therapy and how he became more social, aware, his smile was more natural, and I definitely can better understand things around him in those social settings. Another really great treatment um, that we're seeing just a ton of research on in the last three years is cerebral folate autoimmunity. You know in the 90s they started putting folate in all of our different foods and products. Well some people they have found out, and specifically a high percentage of children with autism, don't process folate like what how they should go figure they don't do it the way the books say it's going to happen so cerebral folate autoimmunity is just a really exciting new therapeutic to work with your physician on and to look to see if your child is a candidate for that therapy and another common thing that we're seeing in teens and adults and we've talked about it before in talk of facts is seizures very serious issue that needs to be looked at um, abnormal brain waves or brain patterns or epileptic activity in the brain definitely needs to be addressed in children with autism. Again, I'm not a doctor, but I know doctors that can go through and work and look at the, the child and perform a 24-hour EG. What they're finding with some of these anticonvulsant or seizure medications is kids start to make great gains in speech, cognition, sleep, learning, by treating any type of seizure activity. So, and the other issue is pandas, not the cute fuzzy bears that we see in the zoo, uh, but an issue that is happening with a lot of teens and adults on the spectrum, where you see a dramatic change in behaviors um, with these individuals, and often they have an inappropriate immune response. Taka has a great white paper, so you can go look up in the pandas definition, what to test and treat for and talk to your doctor about, but know that if you see an extreme swing in behavior 
with a child um, that goes from one place to a very negative place, we're seeing a lot of uh, teens positively responding to treatments for pandas. Uh, and the last tr treatment I wanted to talk about, um, and I'm super excited about, and this happens to not just work with younger kids on the autism spectrum, but also older children on the spectrum, teens and adults, it's called mendability. Um, and a great study just came out of UCI in May 2013 about a multi-sensory approach uh, for individuals with autism. The whole premise behind the therapy uh, is very simple, making it a sensory rich environment so neural connections can make new pathways or at least connect in that individual. So kids with sensory issues, uh, auditory listening issues, uh, speech issues, they seem to really just respond to mendability. And uh, I was so excited to see that new research, more research is being done on it. And the beautiful, beautiful part about mendability is it's something parents can do on their own, administer with their child, and be uh, connected to their kid as partners in the autism journey. Don't forget in any therapy or medical intervention to work with your physician and to do proper testing to know what your child needs and what treatments to pursue under a physician's care. So there's so many new things. I could go on for hours about new treatments and excitement, but there's the top ones that just have me so geeked here. But that's another talk of fact. Thanks for joining me, and we'll see you next time and on Real Journey, Real Questions and Answers to help your autism journey. Welcome back, you guys, to Autism Live. I'm very excited because joining us via Skype and on the phone is the fabulous Bonnie Yates. She's a special education attorney with the law firm of Hirji and Chow in Culver City. We are very excited to have her with us because she sheds light on things that help us to wade through some of the special education things that we need to wade through and, and that we need to know, you need to know your rights, um, which is now what we're going to call this segment, Your Rights. So thrilled to have Bonnie here with us. And Bonnie, we always like to start with a disclaimer about uh, you talking with us. So go ahead and hit that. And okay. tell us about Hirji and Chow also. Thank you. So Hirji and Chow is a six attorney law firm in Culver City, California that focuses on uh, special education, regional center services, and disability discrimination. And our phone number, if you want to call us, if you're interested in a free consultation, is 310-391-0330. Um, and this month is a good month for it because we seem to have had a little lull over the Christmas break. And things aren't going to get really crazy, I don't think, till February. It's like the so quiet before the storm, don't you think? It is like that, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and it's encouraging a lot of, you know, Cuddling under blankets with hot tea by the fire, sort of girding our loins for the inevitable. That's anyway, right. And um, so, what's the disclaimer? Um, we're not giving legal advice. That the answers to the questions are based on providing information about the law says, and it shouldn't be construed as advice because everyone's situation is specific, and I can't respond about your specific situation. So. We encourage people to go to www.copa.net. That's a list of reputable attorneys who belong to the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates nationally. 
and the law is, is, is different in every state, so you need to talk to an attorney in your state. There we go. And that's a good place to start. I don't know all of those attorneys. I don't want it to sound as if I do, but uh, the ones that I have met uh, at the annual conference and whatnot seem to me to be committed and caring. And, you know, I think, there, I think that there's a few components to picking good lawyering for your case. We haven't really talked about that. Um, but committing and care, committed and caring is important, along with professionalism. Uh, but there also has to be legal skill. It's not enough that I, for example, I'm the parent of a child with a disability. I, I need to know what I'm doing. Yeah. Anyway, so that's our disclaimer. Love it. And, Love it. and today we are going to continue our, our discussion about reading. And part of the reason I wanted to do this kind of more extended discussion about reading is because I figured it was really incumbent upon me to read the state's um, most recent 2017 expression of how it thought we ought to be addressing dyslexia and other reading disabilities. And part of the reason I wanted to do that is that I have had a subpopulation of kids with, the, with autism diagnosis who also had difficulty learning how to read. Um, and I also had a population of kids with autism as a diagnosis who did not have trouble learning how to read. However, the method by which they learned to read seemed different than sort of the phonics method that was taught to and was easily assimilated by my other children. So um, this has served its purpose. And if you do have concerns about reading, reading comprehension, written expression, or whatever it is for your child, I think a lot of the issues that are raised in the dyslexia guidelines have broader applicability in terms of giving you subject areas of inquiry at your IEP team meeting when you are trying to get at what the district is doing as far as reading. And sometimes it's really not easy to tell, and sometimes it really feels like they're doing sort of a mishmash of things, and this stuff is really complex and needs to be handled in a, a straightforward and clinical matter, manner by an experienced clinician, and I'm just not so sure that it is. And when you read about the mechanics uh, and the processes uh, in reading uh, in, the, in the dyslexia guidelines, you become aware why that is, because this stuff really is, is complicated, and, and that's... Um, why it's difficult it, you know it just it, the approach that we have used has been changed around a million times and you know um, I think that's because our understanding about reading has, has been incomplete I think we're getting better so anyway last time we talked about the way that that dyslexia and reading problems can manifest for students in high school and college. And I guess in order to be uh, comprehensive about this, CDE also has a lengthy discussion in the dyslexia guidelines about other problems that are not dyslexia that look like reading problems. And they have an extensive discussion about English learners, English language learners. And those are kids who um, speak English, but it's not their first language, and it's not the language spoken in their home. And it talks about how those kids have 
uh, lots of difficulty in uh, learning how to read for reasons other than that they have dyslexia. So there's a small population within that population of kids that have dyslexia. Most of those kids have sort of a lack of exposure uh, to the English language, or they're learning how to read in English, and they haven't mastered the language orally. So that, that causes problems. So anyway, that's kind of where our, our, our discussion picks up. And uh, CDE, California Department of Education, has, uh, there's a tension going on in the publication because what they're saying is so good and so strong and so right and so obvious, and yet these things are being discussed as guidelines, not as um, statewide mandated intervention plan for reading. So um, they say that this you know, problem of dyslexia is a neurological problem, and it involves you know, discrete differences in the brain, and it requires uh, skilled teaching and it requires research-based interventions, and it requires uh, well-researched methods and knowledge about how to implement, and it requires the teaching of reading, oral language, written expression, um, and so on. These are complex tasks, and teachers need kind of pre-training before they actually start teaching. They need practicum, which is practicing the skills, in a in vivo setting, and they need ongoing training. And by implication, I think we can assume that teachers are not getting this, and that's why there's not a lot of consistency as far as reading interventions, and there's not a lot of certainty about how to do the reading interventions. Um, so common professional standards are, are required, and teachers need to be prepared to implement science-based and clinically proven practices. And that is straight out of the book. And it occurs to me that any parent who has questions about reading would be wanting to ask, are you teaching reading per common professional standards? If so, what are they? What is your scientifically based and clinically proven approach to reading? And I think you'll get some interesting answers. Uh, the, the book cites a 2010 publication. I'm not going to go into it, but it, it probably is very interesting. Uh, it's a link in, in the Dyslexia Guidelines, Knowledge and Practical Standards for Teachers of Reading. So we might want to start there. And we're told that the standards involve um, knowing how to teach oral and written language skills, um, phonics, uh, word recognition, excuse me, fluency, vocabulary, comprehension, written expression, handwriting, spelling, and so on. And people that assess kids need to be able to assess them in all of these areas using assessments that are scientifically valid methods of, of assessing kids. So on page 39, the dyslexia guidelines, there's a quote that I want to read you because I think it's important. Um, there needs to be a commitment on the part of, uh, excuse me, i got to back up. If preschool teachers were given the opportunity to acquire basic foundational knowledge of English language structure, they would have the opportunity to develop expertise in individual interventions 
and implementation of instructional strategies during in-service staff development. Again, a critical element in the education of both pre-service and in-service teachers is the need for the opportunity to practice the acquired conceptual and foundational knowledge under supervised conditions. And then it goes on to talk about how you would create that. And so we just had a six-day teacher strike or how, whatever it was after 30 years, and I didn't hear anything about reading. But you can see how reading and literacy really underlie all the problems or many of the problems that we have in California. And there are complex reasons why we, we are 49th out of the 50 states. Um, but we are, and so I think until we begin to teach people how to read, we're going to have an undereducated populace that's going to be at risk for not being able to support themselves and take care of their families and things like that. Um, so the, the dyslexia guidelines then talks about how there has to be a village, that's my term, a village approach to how you do reading and reading intervention. And Can it, I stop you for a second, Bonnie? Yes. I just want to yes. go back to something you said about asking your your teaching staff, what are you what are you teaching with? Are you using best practices? Are you using science based um, things? You've been in many more IEPs than all of us put together. How if if we like? I think that's a wonderful thing to say, but I'm wondering how that is greeted because we know that in a lot of cases they're not. Have you been in the room when a parent asks that, and what has been the reaction? I feel like I haven't been asking enough questions about about reading methods, but I was I have been at meetings where the district representative admitted that uh, I guess this was the principal of the elementary school, and she admitted she didn't know what reading method they were using. Can you imagine? <sighs> yeah. Yes, okay. I can imagine. I mean, that was honest. You know, yeah. she was being honest, but. But the, the way the state has conceptualized the approach to the problem, you have to have commitment on the part of the state universities to teaching teachers how to teach reading. So there has to be university support, and the university is kind of the repository of the studies and the knowledge about, you know, us getting better about how to teach reading. Okay. Um, and then they talk about the role of teachers, speech and language specialists, and, and the psychologist. All educators need to be engaged uh, in teaching reading, uh, and they have to have pre-training and ongoing uh, university-based training. Um, and then they talk about the role of the speech and language uh, pathologist is very critical in teaching the skills that you need to be able to read and also the school psychologist. And the school psychologist is very important because the school psychologist is supposed to be knowledgeable about the kind of assessments that you need to give in order to probe whether or not the student is learning how to read, uh, you know, correctly. Um, so there's also a comment about paraprofessionals, and, and it says this area hasn't been studied a lot. We don't really have any research to tell us whether or not paraprofessionals can be effective in the teaching of reading, but if they are going to try to be, they need extensive research-based training. That's no surprise to any of us. Um, I thought this was interesting, too. School, school administrators, uh, like the principal, are really pivotal in all of this. Uh, 
they quote a study that identified strong leadership as a significant trait in the successful schools of, Re of Florida's Reading First project. The elements identified in their study highlight the areas of focus for the preparation of school principals. They include deep knowledge of students and reading programs, the use of data, and addressing the needs of teachers. These elements should be a major focus of both pre-service and continuing in-service preparation of school principals. In other words, the principal is the instructional leader when it comes to reading instruction and reading interventions. So it would have been really cool if I'd had that paragraph with me or committed to memory, um, uh, you know, and could ask the principal, how do you compare your uh, admitted amount of knowledge to what the state is saying the expectation should be? Uh, so I think that's very interesting. They're really emphasizing a, not only a, a top-down and a bottom-up, but they're emphasizing a universal screening program for kindergartners, uh, whether or not they have dyslexia, because they think it can be identified in kindergarten if you use the universal screening tool for all the kids. And then you want to have the whole school kind of engaged in reading at whatever level they're engaged in it so that it's a school, it's part of the school culture that everybody reads and that we're focused on reading and we're talking about books and we're thinking about words and we're thinking about language so that rather than it being some sort of medicine that you have to take, um, hopefully it can be something that's you know stimulating and interesting and if it's not too hard, it can be pleasurable. Um, so I've already talked about California's difficulties and that there's this achievement gap between the dyslexic non-readers and the readers. It's as, as early, noticeable as early as first grade and it will continue. That's the thing that everybody needs to understand. People are not going to grow out of this. Uh, and dyslexia has different presentations depending on the person, their age, and the severity of their presentation. And that's why you want to start with the universal screening for everyone. Excuse me. It doesn't cost very much, and it, it can save a lot because what happens is if you identify somebody in kindergarten and you give them appropriate literacy support, what you're heading off a few years down the line is severe anxiety and emotional problems that are very common in people who can't learn how to read. I just want to stop so, and go over that again, that for people just tuning in and you're talking about the standards for dyslexia, but you said in the beginning we're talking about this because a lot of our kids have reading comprehension problems. And, yes. and I don't think that very many people have said to autism parents that you should have your, just exactly what you just said there, so I want to go back over it, Bonnie, you should have your child screened for reading issues because there are people who have dyslexia and autism or other, other issues that can be addressed in terms of reading comprehension. And if you don't address these issues, it's a pipeline to anxiety. Right, and other emotional problems because people get depressed when they try something over and over again and they give it their best effort and they fail, and that's what dyslexia is like. I also don't know the answer. I don't know if you do, Shannon, or, or Doreen Wood or you know, someone at Cardwood, but even for the kids that don't have difficulty learning how to read, the children with autism, does the fact that they don't decode or sound out words, does that have an effect on their, on their language fluency later? You know, so there might be it reasons to beef to. up. It yeah, would there, there, there would be reasons to beef up their reading support for other reasons then. 
And I, and I also want to point out, no one said it to me. No one said, you know, you should have your child looked at for reading issues. But it wasn't until my child was eight or nine that someone said, you should have, you should take him to a developmental ophthalmologist and make sure that his, he has his eye um, movement is uh, not hindered. And it was. And right, and, and you could see how that's a really big problem in reading. Is it, it, Even if you get the content, we know that students that have vision difficulties get so fatigued yes. in the classroom, that, and, they, and they rely so much on, on auditory comprehension that if they miss class, they fall very far behind because yes. they, you know, they, they miss the oral instruction. Anyway, so the universal screener would be for kindergartners. It would look at phonics, letters, numbers, sound symbol correspondence, uh, decoding, sight reading, rapid naming, which is, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, spelling, comprehension, fluency, handwriting, written expression, and so on. And the other thing we haven't really touched on, and I'm not suggesting that I'm going to now because I don't, I don't know what I would say about it. It's something I'd need to look into, is we, we all have seen lots of examples of the loopy, messy, big writing that many children with autism have when they do their written expression work. And I've heard that explained as kind of a lack of focus on the writing. I've heard it explained as a hiccup between the brain and the hand. But in, in addition to actually the content of the written expression, the mechanics of writing may give us some clues about what's not going right with the reading. I don't know. You know, that's, that's normally seen as the purview of occupational therapy. But, but I can tell you that in our instance that my son's very bad handwriting was directly related to his vision problem, which was addressed uh -huh. when we had a screening. So the, I think the takeaway is get the screening and you'll find all this stuff out. Yeah, right. And, and you know, it's scary to get a screening or any other diagnostic test, but you got to do it, you know. Yeah. Um, now, people hear the term RTI, I think in their IEPs, in their reading about IEPs. RTI means uh, response to intervention. And there is a suggestion in the, in the law that the, uh, the state should be using uh, interventions that are, that are research-based and, and that demonstrate that when these were used upon students, they responded to the intervention. However, the state law also said, to the greatest extent, practical which makes me crazy because we all know that means that it's not going to happen. But anyway, uh, the Department of Education decided to call it not only um, response to intervention, but response to intervention and instruction. And they say a systematic, data-driven approach that benefits every student is required. And on page 46, and I really do hope that some of you are going to have um, printed out and looked at the dyslexia guidelines because I think they're quite comprehensive. They have um, an interesting little uh, Venn diagram that, that basically kind of summarizes all this. So response to intervention now includes the word instruction in order to emphasize the full spectrum of instruction from general to in intensive 
Response to instruction and intervention is defined as a systematic, data-driven approach to instruction that benefits every student. RTI integrates resources from general education and special education through a comprehensive system of core instruction and tiered levels of intervention to benefit every student. Um, so are we out of time? We are, we are officially out of time. I okay. hate that, but we are. It's the truth. Um, okay. We so go to page 46. We're doing really well. <laughs> we are going to finish this sucker. We're kicking this. Uh, exactly. Fabulous. And, and I just want to reiterate again, it's important because we're seeing guidelines for, for teaching something that our kids likely need to have. Um, and these are things that we can then go into the IEP and have it help us, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Bonnie, but help us guide us in some of the things that we might be asking for for our students. Don't we want to know what the method is that's being used at school to teach our student, our child, how to read? Absolutely. I mean, the dyslexia guidelines will give you the information you need to ask the questions that you're entitled to ask at the IEP. And if they say, well, we can't answer those because we don't have the reading specialist here, that's a denial of parental participation, so you, you should insist that you get the answers. You know, everyone has a cell phone these days. Even if the reading instruction person cannot come in, she should be available by telephone. I love it when you throw these things at us, though, that give us the keys to the kingdom. That that just that saying that that's a denial of parental participation. We all need to write that down somewhere so that when because a lot of times, Bonnie, we ask them questions like, "But you know, what what are you using to do this?" And they find ways to put us off and to <clears throat> to respond to that and say that's a denial of parental participation. I want to crochet that onto a pillow. Okay, well, the pillow that we're going to crochet is next week. We're going to also talk about parental participation and prior written notice okay. because there, there are very few topics that they really don't have to answer to you on. Okay. I love okay. that. That's, that's helping us knowing our rights. So, uh, okay, excellent. That's a fabulous Very thing. good, Shannon. Thank you so All much, right. Bonnie. Tell See us again. Next week. Yes, tell us Thank how we you. reach uh, Hirji and Chow. Okay, so read my lips. They say, send me your questions. Here, G and Chow. 310-391-0330. Hope to talk to you some, some of you soon. And thank you. Also, the website is Lawyer for Children. So, wonderful. All right, we're going to a break. Bonnie, stay one second, but we're going to a break. Okay. And we'll be back. We've got surfers coming in. Um, they're mm. from A Walk on Water, so stick with us. It sounds like I'm leaving at the wrong time. You are. You could stay. Uh, <laughs> parent to parent, you might be asking yourself, how on earth can I afford ABA therapy for my child? Well, the short answer is you can't. No one can. It's really expensive and it's overwhelming to most families. But the story doesn't end there, fortunately. The first thing that I want you to think about is tapping insurance resources. So many insurance companies are paying for ABA therapy right now, so that's your first best bet. Make sure and see if your insurance company is providing benefits for ABA therapy and check back often. 
Now, if you see that you don't have insurance right now for ABA, don't panic. There are still other resources. The next place to go is to your local support groups and ask them what local resources there are. That's a great place to ask for information because often states and even counties have support for ABA. And then beyond that, you might consider applying for grants. There are many fabulous grants out there to help you to get support for your ABA therapy. But most important, it's, it's absolutely essential that you get ABA services for your child. We know that that's essential for all of our children and that you won't be able to do it on your own. So seek out those services and support groups that will help you to fund your ABA journey. It's really important to remember that all behaviors happen for a reason. Hi, welcome back to Autism Live. I'm Lisa Ackerman, Executive Director of TACA. We're going to bake again. All right. It's my lovely assistant. Hi, I'm Jennifer Lucero. We've heard so many people go, I want a decent chocolate chip cookie for my kid to eat. We've got our, um, all our dry ingredients, so I've got the flour. I've got the flaxseed meal, baking soda, baking powder, gar gum, or xanthan gum. Great. So we're going to get started in the mixer here. So there's our dry ingredients. Um, I did have uh, brown sugar. We did cut this down. And the one way to do that is my favorite, and that's maple syrup. I'm using egg for this recipe, but we could use more um, uh, arrowroot and also um, the flaxseed meal. So I'll go ahead and throw my eggs in here, which I love doing. So, and then the last thing is a shortening and a gluten-free, casein-free butter replacement. So, I'm going to go ahead and throw this in. Um, I've let it sit out for a while so it's nice and soft. So, let's go ahead and mix this thing well. These are dairy-free, soy-free, and I really like them. Again, Enjoy Life is a great product. It's also nut-free. And chocolate chips are a personal thing. I won't judge you if you use the whole bag. I would. I know, right? <laughs> So here we go. Great recipe. It's the nice consistency. Um, everything's ready to go so we can enjoy our cookies here in just about 10 minutes. We want to give it a kind of like a couple inches between each cookie. You know, a lot of people are really concerned about aluminum. So what I've done is I laid down my uh, natural brown um, parchment paper and Jen's helping out putting the cookies down. So we're separating uh, the nice big good that's all organic uh, from the aluminum cookie sheets. So let's go put these Great. in. So magic oven allows me to pull the last ones out. And voila. Yum, that's good. Really great cookies. I'll let you have a bite so you can see my Vanna White there too. Mm. Yeah, these taste pretty good. good. Really good. Mm. We're going to come back later after I gain five pounds and <laughs> eat this entire tray. For sure. You know, more feedback is good. So if there's something you want us to convert, like a, another recipe or maybe a relative main, just let us know. AutismLive at gmail.com. You can go to Facebook. Or there's thousands of recipes on the TACA website just waiting for you to explore. You can go to TACANOW, T-A-C-A-N-O-W dot O-R-G. And we'll see you next time at Autism Live. Bye.
Here we are. Welcome back to Autism Live. I'm really happy right now because joining us in the studio is Sean Swentek. Am I saying that right? Yeah, you got it. And you are from, you're the executive director, let's be clear about that, of A Walk on Water. Yes. Let's start with, tell our viewers, what is A Walk on Water? Uh, a walk on water, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of what it sounds like. It's our way of describing um, surfing. And so what we offer is something that we've coined surf therapy. Mm -hmm. It's the idea of taking um, therapy for children with special needs and merging it with the ocean and the power of the ocean and the waves and creating uh, a whole new experience that we think is really uh, life-changing for the, the kids that we serve. So, And how did this come to be? How did a walk on water come to be? A walk on water was formed in the mind of a gentleman named Pat Nataro, who I met um, through my work with another organization called Surfers Healing, who have been mm -hmm. around for many, many years. They're one of the original uh, nonprofits providing surf therapy. And Pat had this vision of creating uh, a foundation that served children with special needs, um, any and all special needs, but we certainly have a number of children with autism that uh, we treat. Uh, and really creating an organization that doesn't just um, serve the athlete, but the entire family unit. We really have a focus on providing a service in a form of therapy that is therapeutic to the entire family because Lord knows um, the parents and the siblings and everyone involved uh, in a family of a child with special needs uh, have a really tough time. So we want to create a day of respite at the beach for the entire family. Okay, so everybody doesn't necessarily have to get on the board. <laughs> no, but I will tell you that we've taken parents out surfing uh, one of our focuses is actually taking the neurotypical sibling surfing alongside their sibling with special needs. Love we that. like to have them bond over something, a shared experience, a shared triumph. Um, as you know, children with special needs and their siblings often have disparate lives, different programming. And so if we can bring them together over a shared experience, we think it's something pretty powerful. And so how long have you guys been doing this? Uh, the organization was founded in 2012. So here we are seven years oh, wow. later which is unbelievable. I've been in this space almost 20 years. I started with Surfers Healing back in 01. Um, it's incredible to see the growth and the development. There's uh, surf therapy organizations popping up every day all around the world. There is an incredible amount of research and, and study going on right now into the efficacy and veracity of what we offer. And it's just a really exciting time to be in this space. It is. And so tell us a couple of your success stories because you've got some good success stories. There are a lot, and I, you know, I, I was thinking on the way up here, I want to make sure I preface this because I'm here at CARD and it's you know, the Center for Autism Related Disorders. I am not a physician, I'm not an occupational therapist, I'm, I'm not a doctor, I'm married to a doctor, there but I'm go. not a doctor. <laughs> and so everything I talk about here is anecdotal, although okay. I will tell you that we just completed a research study with a master's student um, that's going to be published very soon. We're participating in additional research this year and a number of other organizations that we work closely with. Uh, are performing massive studies. There's just so much money getting poured into this right now to really try to understand why it's so beneficial. And when you hear these stories that I'll tell you, you'll understand, I think, why we think yeah. it's such a great thing. So what, the one I always like to start with is our athlete, Jacob. Jacob has been with us since the very beginning. He even surfed a couple times with Surfers Healing back in the day. So he was about four years old when he came to our first event. Um, his parents you know, were very aware of, surf, of uh, surf therapy. They had some friends that had done it, so they would they had heard some success stories and really wanted Jacob to part take part in it. He was very resistant. Uh, he's, you know, very severe autism. He's got a lot of sensory issues. Putting the wetsuit on him was very difficult, mm -hmm. you know. It's funny, a lot of these kids with autism, they really resist getting the wetsuit on, but as soon as it's on, it feels like this really nice hug, right? Yeah. And they actually, a lot of them really like it, but Jacob, he didn't like any of that process. <laughs> and I, I remember I was putting the wetsuit on him and he was literally punching me in the face. I, I had a AWOW <laughs> necklace on, he ripped that off, he was pulling my hair. 
Um, and I'm looking at the parents like, I'm going to keep going. You know, I'm not going to manhandle your child, but I'm, I can be strong enough to get, make this happen. They're like, yeah, we want to see him surf. So we just kept at it. Eventually, you know, we got the wetsuit on. We paired him up with our best surf instructor, Steven. Um, and you know, it was a battle getting him you know, into the water, onto the board. I kind of had to just bear hug him and get him on the board. And Steven kind of laid on top of his legs and paddled him out. And you know, that whole process is almost an hour in itself. I watched Steven paddle him out. I'm like, OK, he's good. I go back to you know, running the operations on the beach. Um, I see Steven out there kind of playing with him. You know, he kind of went around the waves in the outside and just kind of sat there and splashed water with him, got him to calm down. Right. Um, so I said, all right, he's good. About 30, 45 minutes later, I see him coming in. I see his, Jacob's parents running down. So I walk down to the shoreline. And um, you can see Steven's <laughs> exhausted. He's like, right. that was physically and emotionally a battle. You know, he, he was really resistant. But it was amazing to see him open up once he felt the water and was playing with it and enjoying his time in the ocean. It's like once I got him to settle down, I went ahead and caught a few waves, and we stood up both. So the surfer and the child are on the same board together. It's a big custom stand-up paddleboard. Um, and he's like, we caught a few waves, and it was amazing. He's like, I felt his whole body relax. Yeah. And you know how that is with a child with autism. Yes. When they're having their tics and their aggressiveness and their tightness, it's an amazing feeling when they find something that allows them to just fully relax. So the parents were ecstatic. And Stephen goes, yeah, the most amazing thing is, you know, he really started opening up to me after a few waves. and. After the second or third wave, he looked back at me. He's like, you know, kind of talking to me, saying ocean and water and, you know, using these words to describe the experience. And the parents looked at him like, what are you talking about? Our son doesn't speak. Our son's four years old. He's nonverbal. He's never spoken in his life. Um, and um, everyone's kind of like, Stephen's like, I can just tell you what happened. You know, we yeah. were talking in the ocean. So uh, everyone kind of broke down and cried like I'm doing yeah. right now, like I always do. Yeah. Um, and, Jake, and Jacob's, <laughs> Jacob has continued to surf with us for the last seven years. Um, his parents, uh, his parents Sam, uh, Samuel volunteers with us because he's just so passionate about it. They come to almost every event. If you saw Jacob on the beach today, he's about an 11-year-old young man. He'll walk right up to you, say hello, shake your hand. He'll have a conversation with you. He's very well-adjusted, incredible young man who speaks <laughs> more than probably I do. And it's, <laughs> it's really amazing. So. Um, those kind of things are the reason we do what we do and why we're so passionate about it. And then, you know, it's easy to just share the testimonials that we get after events. Parents write in saying, um, it's, it's safe for me to say that was the greatest day my child's ever had in their life. I've never seen them embrace something so scary to me and them and then come out feeling so successful, like they conquered a fear. Um, parents always relate that their child performs better in school afterwards. They have better... Um, behavior in the home, less uh, breakdowns. They interact with their peers better. A big part of what we do at a Walk on Water events is encourage interaction, not just among the athletes with special needs, but with the siblings. And also we have what we call a Grom squad. A Grom in surf terms is a young child that surfs. And we have these young children volunteers who play with these kids as well. And everyone, there's, nobody, there's no labels out there. At the end of the day, we give every kid that participates a trophy, and it just says athlete. Because that's all they are out there. All of them are athletes. Nobody else needs any kind of label. Every kid just wants to have fun. They want to play. They want to enjoy sport. And they want to surf. And so we really have a focus on normalizing um, the idea that play is a natural thing for children of all types and ages. So that's something that we really focus on. And I think these kids really respond well to. It's an amazing thing. And, and you know, the story that you say about this young man speaking, it's by no means the only one of that kind, mm -hmm. right? I know for my son, we did the we did the surfer's healing once. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was five. He was newly five. And I kind of, you know, I can swim enough 
to save myself as long as I'm not in moving water, right? Yeah. That's, so I hey, call that's myself, a necessary skill. I call myself an advanced rock, um, right? <laughs> that's, that's the, you know how they have like, you know, are you a tadpole or yeah. you an advanced rock? So I'm a little bit afraid of the water. Mm -hmm. My son loves the water, has always run to the water, mm -hmm. thinks the water is just the, like a lot of kids on the autism spectrum. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, you know, sent him to some swimming classes because I knew about the statistics about kids running to water. I wanted him to be able to know how to roll over on his back and float mm -hmm. in case of an emergency. And But we were at that point where he could roll over and float when we did surface healing. And um, I'm an ex-school teacher. I took him out of school to go. And so that's the, how big of a deal. I was like, nope, we're leaving school that day. Wow. We're and they, you know, they got him into the wetsuit while I was, you know, hyperventilating. <laughs> and then two very large surfers walked away with my child. Yeah. And I don't let anyone walk Probably away with Probably bearded, my child. tattooed guys as well, right? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I was too busy having a nervous breakdown. But they, they walked him into the ocean. I didn't get their names or their driver's licenses. And, I, like, and they just walked into the ocean. And I thought we were going to have a discussion beforehand. But they walked into the ocean. And my husband and I separated on the beach. We both had video cameras. And we still have the video camera that I, I couldn't see where he was. And he was out there for probably 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. and, and I let the camera run, and you get to hear my mouth run. <laughs> and I was like, what did I just do? I just let my child walk away with two strangers. And what am I thinking? Yeah. Why am I? Like, if he ever comes back, we're never doing anything like this again. But he came <laughs> back in. And keep in mind that my child had been verbal, lost all communication, and then was speaking again. But we hadn't gotten to the... Like, you could prompt him through a sentence about something if you had things there to prompt him through, mm -hmm. right? Um, but so the first time that he did, he said a sentence that, that is true, like the ABA people talk about interverbals, where he used things that he wasn't being shown or anything. They came in, and I was there when he came in, and he was so excited. You could see that he, you know, his body was vibrating five years old, and he looked up at me and said, Mommy, I not get eaten by the shark. <laughs> Right, And I did not know that that's where his fear was, but he had had a really good time. Mm -hmm. and, the, and it brought that full sentence out of him. So I'm a believer. Um, I have not been able to get him back to surfing mm -hmm. since. Um, but I really feel that we must because he's 15 now and... I think he would really get a big kick out of it now. He would I love think to now, take him out. Now he would like, you know, have a different take on it and, and be thrilled about it. But I, I I think for parents that are reticent, yeah. um, you know, I've seen a lot of parents go through a lot of anxiety about this um, and, and come out the other side. Even the anxiety that I went through was worth it for that sentence mm -hmm. and for him to get a bigger picture of the world. Yeah. I think it changed everything that came after that because he had a sense that there was more than just this. Well, and you bring up a really great point. Um, the nice thing that you did is you said you're not super comfortable in the ocean, but you didn't translate that fear onto him before. So what we've had, what we've I think experienced that was in a the fluke. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> we've experienced in the past, and it's very common in all societies that parents tend to pass on to their children not just their fears, but everything, but their fears and the things that scare them. So if a parent is scared of going in the ocean, is scared of sharks, even if they don't verbally say that, that 
feeling of fear can get passed on to the child. And then you have two people who are reticent, and especially the child who needs to go in is going to have a real tough time. So we always encourage parents ahead of it to really reinforce the idea that, yeah, it is a whole new thing. It's a yeah. new world, but it's something really exciting. It's something to be excited about. And we see that those kids that have that um, entry level, that entry point do a lot better. But you know what? We can't change you know, what's already been said or done. And so we do have a lot of kids who come out um, who are really scared. Yeah. And we, you know what we do is we work. It worried me a little when you said I didn't even know who these people were. <laughs> we have, a, a, at least at a walk on water, we really focus on creating a relationship, not just with the athlete, but with the family before uh -huh. they even go out and surf. So we spend time with you as we're getting on the wetsuit, getting to know the child, getting to know you, letting you know our names. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to hand you yeah. our driver's license, but if you <laughs> wanted it, we'd, we'd certainly have it on file. Um, and we go through certain you know, background checks and safety checks, and all our volunteers are specially trained and go through special training courses that we've devised, and also like American Red Cross CPR. Uh, we go through special uh, courses on how to do water rescues if something were to happen, which, yeah. you know, God, God forbid that ever would. But we put all these safeguards in place yeah. so that we can make sure that everything that we control as far as alleviating fear, we attend to. And uh -huh. then it's up to the parent and the child to trust us. And like yeah. I said, some of us, most of us are tattooed, bearded, scary looking dudes. <laughs> uh, but all of us have hearts of gold. And, and we do this and we have done this for a long time and we know what we're doing and we're highly trained and highly sophisticated even though we are a bunch of surfer dudes, right? And so um, I would just tell any parent that's maybe scared, just come down to the beach even if you don't participate that yeah. day. Just come look and come see what happens because watching our videos, which I think you guys might show some today, and looking at the pictures is one thing, but getting down there and feeling the energy and the vibe and the family type atmosphere that we create is really important. We all break bread together. We provide breakfast and lunch and snacks and drinks, healthy stuff throughout the day. And the volunteers and the families sit together and get to know each other. There's so many of our families and volunteers who engage each other outside of the events. They call oh. each other on Christmas. They all get together for events. It, it's, we, we call it, so the acronym for Walk on Water is AWOW, A-W-O-W. We call it the AWOW family oh, yeah. because that's really what it is. We want to create this environment where everyone feels supported. Everyone feels like they're heard. If they have a fear, they feel like they can tell us, and we'll talk to them about it and work through it. So I, love it. I don't want anyone to ever say, I, I don't go in the ocean. There's no way my kid's going to. Give them a chance. Your kid yeah. will amaze you at the things they can do. Right? Isn't it amazing? Trayvon, do we have video? I'm waiting to see where. Uh, let me know if we can play the video. But I also want to. Okay. Um, so uh, I do want to say, though, that Nava Paskowitz has written in and said, Sean is the man. <laughs> Now, uh, I love Nava. So Nava's brother, Izzy, is the one who founded yes. Surfers Healing. Uh, the Pasquitz family are incredible people. They're surfing royalty. They are. They're also autism royalty, too. Yes. So uh, the, those two things together, which is I, an amazing I thing. I love Nava. So, Trayvon, I think let's go ahead. If you're ready, can we show the video? Or do you need some time before we can show the video? I'm okaying it. By the way, that picture right there, that's yeah. the number one surfer in the world, Felipe Toledo in the middle there with that young man whose name is Jeremy, who has the biggest stoke on his face that you've ever seen. That, that's a drilling rig, unfortunately, in the background, which tells you it's Huntington Beach. Uh, uh, but yeah, Felipe Toledo came out and took kids yeah. surfing, which some of these kids are like, this is unbelievable. Like, this guy who's the top surfer in the world, and he was so amazing with the kids. Um, it was incredible. The WSLs, the World Surf League, contacted us and said, you know, we have the number one surfer in the world. He wants to participate with you guys through our partnership with Jeep. And so they came out and did this, and it was 
It was so amazing. cool for these kids to get Absolutely to have that amazing. experience. I guess, unfortunately, we aren't able to show the video through okay. a technical difficulty. But no worries. Um, I, you've talked a lot about the research and and how there's a lot of money being spent right now mm -hmm. uh, to to show the things that you've seen for mm -hmm. your own eyes. When can we, what's the expectation about when we're going to be able to see this and what's the path to legitimizing this for, so, for the public? So, we're closer than you realize. Um, surf therapy is already like covered by insurance and government supported in many nations around the world, including the UK and Australia. I'm not going to make any comments about the US being behind the eight ball there, but um, there are, I've heard in the US of people being able to get this covered if they don't call it surf therapy, if it's some form of physical therapy at the beach, um, your insurance can cover it. Um, there are ways to get it. I mean, keep in mind, a walk on water has always been and will always be 100% free to attend for the families. We have incredible sponsors. John Paul Mitchell Systems, the hair care company, is our title's partner for the last four years. That's they amazing. make this possible with many others so that these families never pay for anything. And That's we treat amazing. it, like I said, it's a whole day, 8 to 4 at the beach, breakfast, lunch. We have a masseuse for the parents. Well, where do we yoga. sign up for this? Uh, Enough. <laughs> I want to come. Awalkonwater.org. Okay. Awalkonwater. If that's too long to type in, awow.org will get you to the same place. Okay. And then do you do it all year long, or are there only mm -hmm. certain weekends that you can do We try it? to keep it to the warm months so it's about March through November okay. um, although we're working on some tropical locales that we might eventually make it to where we could have a December January type event and be year-round but we do 10 to 13 single day or sometimes two-day large-scale events we're taking up to 100 kids surfing each day wow. even with that we have so many volunteers and so many instructors that each child gets at least an hour of surf time maybe two as much as they want really we don't want these kids to say oh you get 20 minutes in the water and you're done we want them to really feel like they can get the maximum experience that they're looking for. And then you do it at different locations. Mm -hmm. So you pick one that's close to you on a date that you can go and sign exactly. up for it. We go as far north as Santa Cruz, as far south as San Diego. And then four years ago, we started um, an East Coast chapter as well. So we have events in New York out on Long Island, New okay. Jersey, Rhode Island, Virginia Beach. Um, those kind of places. So. Okay, so you got to get yourself to a coast. Yeah, well, and that, uh, yeah, that, that's, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but you just no. brought up such an important point. It, from the day we started this, we said it's really, uh, I don't want to say unfair, but it it's bothers us that people who are landlocked, who might be in Colorado or Nebraska or whatever, they don't have access to this. You have to live by a coast, like you said, um, or get yourself to the coast, which is why it was really exciting last year. We went to a wave park in Texas uh -huh. and did one of our events and took a bunch of kids from the local area there, and it was, you should have seen the amount of tears flowing, because these parents in Texas were like, I never had any dream in my life that my kid would surf. We live in the middle of Texas. Right. Um, so we're really active in trying to discover opportunities to bring surf therapy to people who are landlocked, whether it's through these wave pools okay. or creating some kind of program where we can fly families from those landlocked states out to the coast for an event. It's cost prohibitive right now, but we're on the search for sponsors like an airline or a hotel sponsor to offset that, to make that possible so that any family that wants to try this therapy has the opportunity to. Super cool. We have some people at CARD who surf pretty much on a daily basis, um, and that's sort of how I got to meet you. Sarah, being uh, one Yes, yeah, Sarah Cho, uh, who, every morning takes herself. I heard it like 4.30 in the morning. Uh, well, she's, she's a mom. She's, she's a trooper. Right, so she goes and surfs before she comes home to have breakfast with her kids before her kids wake up. It's a, it's a level of craziness that I can't subscribe to. Um, but, I, you know, I know a lot of um, moms and dads that surf 
for health, both physical and mental. Mm -hmm. That it is, they say it is their time of the day, it's their mindfulness ritual, that it helps them. And, and, and if they cannot do it, like I'm thinking about Nava, mm -hmm. you know, Nava will say, I, I gotta get to Hawaii, mm -hmm. I, gotta, I, got to get, I have to get to the beach, I have to be in the water, um, how important it is. And, and we see in our kids that they are drawn to the water and giving them more and more skills in the water, there's no way that that could be bad. There's just I like there's no so. element of it that could be bad. There's a, yeah, I mean, outside of just surf therapy, there's a ton of research. In the last 10 years, there's been a huge driver in this uh, sort of blue mind space, as we call it, of being in and around bodies of water. And uh, this guy, Wallace J. Nichols, who's become a friend of mine, is this amazing guy who's shown that being in or around bodies of water changes your mental state, your physical state, your entire body chemistry. And it's, uh, there's a lot of research going into that as well because it's just really interesting. I mean, yeah. you get in the shower, you feel better, right? Yeah. So you get in a lake or a river or the ocean and this powerful natural body of water, it's amazing how it changes how you feel. Yeah, I've got theories on that, but they're out there. Yeah, I, uh, listen, they're, they're dude, I want to hear them. Uh, all right, well, we're going we're gonna, <laughs> to, uh, because we have to get to our next guest, but I, I just want to thank you. Yeah. And to tell everybody, so visit awalkonwater.com. Or, or .org. Or, yeah, either one will get um, you there. Or go to awow.org mm -hmm. and see, just open your mind. Today's topic is being willing, mm -hmm. right? So be willing to look and see, is there a time and a place that you could go? Yep. And then be willing to go to the beach. That doesn't mean you have to get into the water. Mm -hmm. um, be willing to do that. So I'm saying I'm going to be willing <laughs> to do that and get my son to be willing because I... I need for him to try it again. Uh, he thoroughly enjoyed it, but uh, but I think I did put my fear of shark on him because otherwise, where would he have gotten that from? Well, he obviously had a great time, so you he didn't did. you didn't screw he him did. up. No. Um, the last thing I'll say is that our we're going to be opening up signups for our April event, which just happens to be here in LA, okay. at world famous Surfrider Beach in Malibu. Okay. So keep an eye next week, probably Monday or Tuesday, the signups will open. We'll announce on our social media, so follow our Instagram and things like that. Um, get on there, sign up your kid. If you haven't done it, I can't wait to have you come out and experience it. It's life-changing. Yeah. It really is. We all have to do this. I and the I knew to sign up for Surfer's Healing because a dear friend of mine who's also been on the show, Glenn Cassell, who's a Broadway director, mm -hmm. he saw a piece on the news at, right after my son had been diagnosed and said, Shannon, do you know about this? This looks amazing to me. There's something about this that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And when Glenn s sends me something, I'm like, I better pay attention to that. And I went, okay, surfing? Okay, like, why not? Well, uh, and it's, it is amazing. Thank I've heard you, so Glenn. And that, yeah. what's your son's name? Jem. Uh, now we need to get Jem out to my walk on water event. So I, I, I better see you out there on the beach this year. No, you year. will. I'm telling you, before the year is over, I'm, I, we're coming back and out. Maybe we'll paddle you out and you guys can surf next to each now, other. Now, that's a thing that I don't know if we can get to the river. <laughs> Remember the advanced rock Hey, parts. you don't even need to know how to swim. We'll do all the work for you. Oh, I don't... See, my fear of everything else is just... If you put me and laid me on my stomach on the floor, mm -hmm. it would take me a week to get up. <laughs> and I would need a crane and someone to hold on to, and I would be dizzy and not be able to stand. So you're talking about having me out in water on a thing that's slippery. I, I think I'm gonna do a lot of swimming with the fishes, we'll see. Uh, but Nava has said it. Nava has said that she's gonna get me on a surfboard, and I'm like, Nava, if you can, and Sarah has said it, and now we have a, another doctor who visits here mm -hmm. who surfs with Sarah. They've all said it, and I've said, God bless you all. I, I wish you the best with that. I can't see that, 
But I but today's topic is being willing. So there we have it. I like it. Uh, all right. Thank you so much for being here. Sharon, for thank all you the work so much for having do. me. We love what you do. We're going to take a brief break, a brief break. That's what I want to say. And then we're going to be back with Christian Shaw from Kamloops Self Navigate Self I can't talk anymore. It's okay. See what you've done. You yeah, it's the, yeah, you're thinking about self, the water. Self Advocate newsletter. So stick with us. Don't go away. Um, trying to uh, just um, Jeez. let me think. <laughs> oh man, that's a big one. Yes. Uh, autism. Uh, autism is a neurological disorder that affects many of our kids in different ways. It's a learning disability that affects the cognitive functions of the brain. A lot of people have the misconception that it's a disability, and it's really not. I look at it as like a special gift. When one person thinks differently from another, it's an opportunity for everyone to learn to understand someone that's a little different than them. Autism is the ability to educate. They're given so much talent in different areas. To me, autism means a chance to be with and be around people you really care about. Autism is beautiful. It's a way of seeing the world differently. It's always unique, totally intelligent, and sometimes mysterious. Happiness that, that comes out of my um, son's um, hard work. It's a movement. Unpredictable. That's right. Awesome. Love. The field I want to work in. Laughter. Fun. Joy. Autism is beautiful to me. I want you to remember these three words. There is hope. Last week, we talked about the first step to empowerment, accept and embrace this challenge. Sometimes you have people that support you in your denial. Maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your mother. When I expressed my concern to my pediatrician about Wyatt losing language around the age of two, his response, maybe he's a late talker, he's a boy, let's wait and see. <laughs> But what about the temper tantrums? What about the fact that he put his head through the kitchen window? What about the bite marks and scratches all over my arms and chest? He said he's probably just frustrated that he can't express himself. Let's wait and see. But autism doesn't afford us that luxury. Of course, I was relieved of my pediatrician's reassurances, but I should have gone with my gut. Because if I had, I could have gotten a diagnosis two years earlier and I lost two valuable years that could have been spent on early intervention. And finally, when Wyatt was diagnosed, he was misdiagnosed. But of course, part of that was my problem too. I lied in a lot of those parent questionnaires so things looked better. I can't turn back the hands of time, but I can recommend that you face this challenge head on. Denial prevents us from walking a path we eventually will have to walk anyway. The sooner you face the truth, the sooner you can help your child. Until next time, take care of yourself and keep the faith.
Hard times lead to good choices. Many times you're going to find out that change is coming and it's not something that you like to see. Things sometimes just don't work. Sometimes you have to put your child in a new school. Sometimes you have to put them in a different classroom. Often you'll see this with perhaps special education versus regular education or everyone's favorite, puberty. All bets are off then. However, these things happen when they need to happen. So making that hard choice is super, super scary. But when you open those doors to look at things that maybe you've never dreamed you would have to look at, you're going to find help that you never expected. There are a lot of people out there dealing with the same things that you are dealing with, and there is a level of help that you never even knew existed. So don't be afraid when it's time to look at the scary problems that you're having. When those things come up, when the aggression increases, when things are falling apart at home, when you're getting the calls from the schools, don't be afraid. Reach out. Find out what you need to do. You might need to look at new schools, new housing. You might need to access new levels of service. But I am telling you, you're going to see amazing things. There are children that, as they grow, do things with the help of others, very specialized support that you never thought they could do. So once you do that and you meet the child where he or she is and you give them what they need, everybody can do better and you're going to see amazing progress. Welcome back to Autism Live. We have a guest joining us via Skype that I can't wait to talk to, but I wasn't able to hear him in my ear, you guys. So uh, I don't know what you need to do so I can hear him. Uh, but Christian Shaw is going to be joining us. He is from the Kamloops Self Advocate Newsletter, which can be reached at the Kamloops, and that's spelled K A M L O O P S, then self advocate at yahoo.com. And uh, Christian had written to us and said, uh, I own a disability awareness and success stories newsletter called the Kamloops Self-Advocate Network to stomp out stigma and discrimination around all disabilities, including but not limited to mental health issues. We've been in business for over five years, and I've, I'd like to get the word out there about my newsletter business. People should only judge us based on the content of our character. Uh, he says, that's my mandate for the newsletter and why I started it. My newsletters are online and offline. I would also like to stomp out stigma and discrimination on your radio show. So he, I hope he's going to tell us if we are doing anything that's perpetuating stigma or discrimination. Because here's the thing. If we are, I do want to know about it, you guys. I, I do have a lot of self-advocates who write into us. And uh, if there's something that we're doing, we because that's not our intention, right? Um Okay, and he says, I'd like to showcase our newsletter worldwide, and there are articles in the Kamloops Self-Advocate uh, newsletter that can apply to everyone, even people with disabilities worldwide. Uh, and he wants to get access to stories and post it on the newsletter groups and on Facebook to increase their followers and readers worldwide. Um, so fabulous. Um, so do we have him yet in my earpiece? Uh, Christian, are you there? Okay, they're having a little bit of problem with the... Uh, the because so, we're talking uh, he's all the way in uh, British Columbia Canada so they're trying to get him back on the line I'm going to go ahead and read uh, more of what he wrote to us here the Kamloops self-advocate newsletter is a disability awareness and success stories newsletter covering all disabilities with intellectual disabilities and an and an anxiety disorder myself okay so Chris uh, Christian are you there Yes, I am. I am so happy to meet you and to talk to you. Uh, we've been reading a little bit about what you had written to us about your newsletter, but tell me all about your newsletter. 
I focus on disability awareness and success stories, which also includes autism, to help stop our stigma and discrimination in the world. And that's a very important thing to us as well. I know one of the things that you said in your letter is that you'd like to stomp out the stigma and discrimination in our radio show. Are you seeing us do things that create stigma and discrimination, Christian? Nope. Oh, well, thank you. Then I'm glad we don't have anything to stomp out. But I, I want to say to everybody, if you do see that, please know that that is not our intent and that we need to, if that happens, we need to be educated and we appreciate that. But Christian, I want to talk to you a little bit about, you asked for us to t ask you about your mom. People told my mom that I, that I couldn't ever read and write, but I proved them wrong. Yeah, you got your own newsletter. You absolutely proved them wrong. Did you, were, when your mom was told that, were you there? Did you hear people say that you would never be able to read and write? Nope, that was, that was in my school files and stuff, but I only got told from a mom. And did your mom believe it? Did she nope. think, did she think she, that you she would be She said with the right support that you have in place, you can do anything you set your mind to. Well, amen to that. Your mom, your mom sounds like a really strong woman. Yeah. And so what kinds of things did your mom do to set you up for success? How did she help you to be able to learn to read and write? I got lots of support by different disability services in my life when I was growing up and during my adulthood. And so you're 29 years old now? Yeah. But you started the newsletter when you were 22. What made you want to start? The, was there something that happened that made you want to start the newsletter? Um, I had a mental health issue, and people weren't afraid of it and didn't understand what my disability is like and stuff because I also have developmental disabilities and a mental health issue with it, and they didn't know what it, what and they were afraid of me. Or a and so they thought to be my friend. And and now that you've been doing the newsletter for the last few years, do you feel that it has helped you with some of those issues that you were just talking about? Yes. And and so how can people access the newsletter and is how can we help support you? By writing your by writing into your articles. Camly, to the Camlu Self Advocate at yahoo.com, which is my work email, or you can go onto my podcast and we can do podcasts together and I can interview you. Oh, I would love to do that. I would absolutely love to do that. And I'm sure that we have some viewers who would love to do that as well. So, um, how often does the newsletter come out? Once a month in Kamloops, British Columbia, and around on the world online. Okay. So is there a certain day of the month that it comes out? It comes out the first of the month, which is actually 
on the 1st of February, possibly. Okay. And so then do you take the whole month? Does it take you a whole month to put it together or you just work on it in the last week of the month before? Like, uh, are you I, working on, on February I get I get articles to me by the 15th of the month. Okay. Wonderful. And so there's no cost for the newsletter. No, it's totally free with ads inside, but it's totally free for the community to help stop our stigma discrimination with ads inside. And if people want to be a sponsor, they can call, they can reach you at the Kamloops Self Advocate at yahoo.com. Yeah. And how much does it cost to be a sponsor? Um, I haven't. I haven't thought of that yet. Okay. I only get ads in Kamloops. Okay. Well, and so you mean on the website or on the newsletter? In the newsletter, there's ads. Okay. And so how much are they? How much does it cost for that? It costs $25 for 46 months. And if you advertise, for long, for a short time, then it's a little bit more money. Okay. All right. Well, that's a great deal. I got to be honest, Christian. That's a great deal. So if people want to sponsor, I'm sure there's a lot of people with businesses um, that would want to sponsor. You can absolutely do that and help uh, Christian to keep his uh, newsletter afloat. So Christian, I just want to thank you for writing to us and for doing this important work because it's it's good for all of us. We all need to be active in stomping out stigma and discrimination against all individuals of all abilities. Yeah, and, and just recently, before before we are ending this call, yes. I am also branching out with homeless people too. Oh, and that's a really important topic because as we know, there's a lot of people who are homeless that are part of the reason why they're homeless is because they have uh, mental um, mental illness or or things that they could use more support and didn't get them. So I think that's a really important thing. And thank you for in including that um, because that's it's important for all of us to support individuals who are homeless as well. Uh, I'm I'm so impressed with all that you've been able to do, Christian. You're um, an amazing young man. Uh, what's next for you? Have you got something else? You're going to really stay focused on Kamloops. I'm gonna. I am focusing it on the whole world. I love that. By putting it online. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for being with us, Christian, and thank you for being patient with us while we dealt with the technical issues. Thank you. All right. Good luck to you. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, we are unfortunately passed out of time, and so I apologize that we didn't have more time to spend with Christian. Um, and next week we are back. We've got more shows coming. And next week we're going to be unveiling a new schedule that we're going to have here at Autism Live so that we can bring you more shows, more information, more of the time, all in, all in free. Thank you, Chris, Christian. Um, all in uh, the a little bit more time. So we'll be unveiling that next week. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now.